the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Balance of Nature's fruit and veggie capsules contain 100% fine-ripened fruits and vegetables, tested pure with no pesticides, fillers, or additives of any kind, and are the most effective whole food supplements on the market today. You might ask, how can over 10 servings of 31 different fruits and vegetables fit into six vegetarian capsules? Fruits and vegetables are on an average 85% water. Balance of Nature uses cold vacuum technology to remove the water, leaving only the whole food. We don't use any heat, air, or light drying methods that damage nutrients. Our cold vacuum technology maintains 99% of the fresh fruits and vegetables' original nutritional value. Along with diet and exercise, Mother Nature provides fruits and vegetables to help us maintain good health. To order, go to balanceofnature.com or call 1-800-246-8751. That's 1-800-246-8751. Use the special promo code PODCAST. Birthday, 1990, we sent out uh, all kinds of different pamphlets and computer graphics that they could use on the air to these television meteorologists all around the country to get them to put it on the air to say, we've got a problem with CO2, plant more trees because trees will absorb CO2 and sequester it. In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator born and raised on the West Coast. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 Cast. What's happened in today's world? Climate change has become the universal boogeyman to any weather event that seems abnormal. Hi there, welcome back to the 180 cast where we explore the brains of people who have done the impossible, which is to say, change their minds. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. It is getting uh, pretty warm outside where I am in central Washington. Uh, it's also super hazy because there is a wildfire in my county, and I am having painful flashbacks to last summer when the smoke was so thick I could barely see past my backyard fence, and we were advised not to go outside for like three or four weeks. Uh, I'm dead serious. I have the pictures to prove it, and if you recall, last year the fires in California were pretty frightening as well. Um, Many people see fires like this as a sign of global warming's intensifying impact on our environment. We're being told there's more wildfires and that they're bigger and hotter. And having experienced the effects of the smoke, at least firsthand, it's pretty darn alarming. Um, it has a pretty big impact on your life. And so it's no wonder that, you know, people start thinking about these things, especially this time of year. And, and um, you know, what might the future look like if all this pans out according to what the majority of scientists are 
telling us. Um, and I think people who've experienced any of the recent hurricanes or tornadoes would probably feel similarly because we're not just affected by recency bias, but by what we're being told in the media. And that is that, you know, this is probably the result of man-made climate change. But, but there are people out there who are not totally convinced of that and their names are not Alex Jones or, you know, Sean Hannity or whomever else is supposedly repping the global warming deniers TM. Uh, A lot of scientists and researchers of varying levels of credentials um, and association with, you know, climate or weather science have pretty serious concerns about the way climate data is being gathered, the way it's being adjusted and presented and Those are the kinds of 180s that are based on an abundance of research, especially looking at raw data that are highly, highly valued on this podcast because we should be driven by facts. We should be driven by a deeper knowledge of the issues if we're going to, you know, plant a flag on this side or the other and say, this is where I stand and I'm promoting my opinion. So with that in mind... I have Anthony Watts with me today. He is a former TV meteorologist and founder and editor of the massively popular climate science blog, What's Up With That, um, as well as surfacestations.org. And he is a senior fellow at the Heartland Institute. So I am so excited to have him on the podcast today to explain his 180 on this hottest of hot button issues, pun intended, because I'm a nerd. Thank you, Anthony, for joining me. Sure thing. Before we get into the why I did a 180 and became a climate skeptic uh, after being um, caught up in the whole climate change, global warming thing years ago, let me talk about, you know, you mentioned wildfires earlier. And, you know, basically what's happened in today's world is that climate change has become the universal boogeyman to apply to any weather event that seems abnormal or any natural event that seems abnormal. We got a big fire, it's climate change. We get a big thunderstorm, it's climate change. We get too much rain, it's climate change. Too little rain, it's climate change. We get a drought, it's climate change. We get a flood, it's climate change. It's it's the universal boogeyman. The the press and the climate alarmist will blame anything on climate change with no facts to back it up. And that's just their way of of basically, uh, you know, creating an alarm. And when, when people are alarmed, they're concerned, and then they vote. You know, just to mm-hmm. suppress the alarm. You know, oh, you're going to do something about it. You're going to make the make the rain stop, or we're going to make it rain more. Well, we'll vote for that. You know. So, okay, so so let's define really quick. But what are the stakes of this debate? Like, are we really just squabbling over something that um, people are making a big deal of, but that it's not going to you know matter that much because we'll find out who's right eventually, or could we end up like burning the whole planet or crashing the world economy? Like I just saw, um, I guess there was one study that came out pretty recently that said that, um, you know, climate change policy could cost something like $1 trillion to the world economy, you know, based on whose predictions are influencing policy. So what are the stakes here? Why does this matter at all? Well, it's basically become... 
a, a way to control and tax the population. Uh, when you control energy, and that's what they really target, you can control people. I mean, if gasoline's too expensive because you've taxed it heavily, you know, you get lots of things for your pet projects or whatever, and you keep people from, you know, doing as much. It, it's really about control. But let me just say that climate change really it has not lived up to its claims. Uh, we keep hearing that the sea ice is going to disappear. You know, we were told in 1988 when um, uh, the first uh, IPCC formed that we had about 10 years or so to save the planet. That's come and gone. It hasn't, you know, the planet's still here. Now it's 12 years. Uh, and there was recently another story saying we've got until 2050. They keep moving it out. And part of it had to do with the fact that they are using climate models to make um, are basically like tuning a carburetor. You can make the engine run rough, you can make it run easy just by turning a couple of knobs. It's the same thing with climate models. If you are expecting a bad outcome, it's easy to make one just simply by adjusting your input. And then you can say, well, there you go. So the, the, the real risk that we have is loss of freedom, loss of economic, um, uh, loss of economic you know, things, uh, more taxes. These are all happening because climate change is being as, used as an excuse to do something or pass laws. But the bottom line is, is that the evidence just isn't there for any catastrophic man-made climate change. For example, you talked about the wildfires. Well, a study in 2007 done by uh, Cook, who is a, a paleoclimatologist, um, showed that we've had in the West, in the Western United States, including Washington and California and Oregon, up to 200-year-long droughts. They did this by looking at, at tree rings. We've had, from the period of about 850 A.D. to 1050 A.D., a mega drought, 200 years long, and another one from about 1125 A.D. to almost 1300 A.D. So this happened well before carbon dioxide increased in the atmosphere, way before we had SUVs to drive around or airplanes to fly. <laughs> and so how did that happen? Well, it happened because we live in a chaotic system. The Earth is a chaotic system. It naturally varies. And every once in a while, things shift one way or another. We have no control over that. Yeah. So this is where you come down now. But let's talk about your 180. So you used to believe the, the Earth has a, a temperature, the Earth has a fever, and that it was caused by CO2. Yep. Back in 1988, when Dr. James Hansen addressed Congress in June of 1988, uh, over 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, um, basically he said that um, he'd run these computer models, and he had three scenarios, business as usual, increase CO2 at this level, increase CO2 at this level, and then he showed temperature projections, and he put that before Congress and said, we've got a problem. Um, Congress ate it up. And I was watching that live feed from the congressional testimony with him testifying, saying that, you know, we have this problem. I was watching it at my television station, and it struck me as, yeah, we've got a problem. I believed him completely. And so I, at that time, started thinking about, well, what can I do as a television meteorologist to make a difference? What can I do to help change carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? And I came up with a, a plan that I approached the National Arbor Day Foundation with uh, over in Lincoln, Nebraska. And we set out um, on Earth Day. 
1990, we sent out uh, all kinds of different um, pamphlets and computer graphics that they could use on the air to these television meteorologists all around the country to get them to put it on the air to say, we've got a problem with CO2, plant more trees because trees will absorb CO2 and sequester it. And so I was a climate activist for 1990 and 1991 with the National Arbor Day Foundation trying to get more trees planted. And we did so. We planted about a half a million extra trees each year uh, due to that program around the United States. But I started looking at things differently when I met a man by the name of James Goodridge. He was the former state climatologist of California. He had come to my town in Chico, California to retire and we struck up a friendship and he started showing me some of his data. And in 1996 he published a scientific study that was published in the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society that showed the temperature trend based on different counties in California. And he did it by population. And so large counties like Los Angeles County, San Bernardino County and so forth that had over a million residents, he showed the temperature trends of those counties and it was a strong upward temperature trend. But then smaller counties, uh, not necessarily smaller in size, but smaller in population, like uh, Mono County and Humboldt County, you know, up in the north, they had virtually no temperature trend at all over the last 30 years. And I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. If CO2 is in the atmosphere and heating the atmosphere up or causing heat retention, how does it know to heat these counties differently? It's not an intelligent molecule. And that's when the light bulb went on. And, and that's when I realized, wait a minute, the theory and the reality don't match. I see. Okay. And so this is what led you to the... So where, where did that lead you? What, what, what threads did you pull on? Well, at that point, I began to question whether or not we really had a problem. And I didn't really do much with it for a few years. Uh, about 10 years later, in 2006, uh, after I'd left television, um, I had time on my hands. And I went back to Jim and looked at something else that he had found. And he had found that a number of weather stations in California were very poorly sighted. In fact, some of them uh, were right next to incinerators. For example, on Mount Hamilton, where they have um, the observatory. It's east of San Jose. And they have a, a big observatory up there, uh, scientists. They have uh, the weather station for that on the rooftop of a building. And they've got a trash incinerator right next to it. And it's like, okay, the way they measure climate uh, signal is they take the high temperature of the day and the low temperature of the day and average that, and then they send that data in. Well, if you've got a, a trash incinerator near the thermometer, it's going to raise the temperature, and it's going to affect the average. So how is this, you know, accurate science? And he'd found a number of examples like this of, you know, uh, weather stations near big concrete uh, buildings or parking lots or whatever that were holding heat at night and releasing it into the air. People that um, anybody can tell you, if you've been out uh, during the day in the summer and you've got a brick building you're standing next to it at sunset, you can feel the heat radiating off the brick building. Same thing for a parking lot. Right. And so what happens is, is as, as over time what's happened, we found, and I actually did a study on this on for the whole nation back in 2007, 2008, and I published on it, is that all around the country, we've had this encroachment of infrastructure, more roads, more concrete, more asphalt, more buildings, but the thermometers have stayed in the same place. 
A perfect example is Chicago O'Hare Airport. Now, O'Hare Airport, when you get your luggage tag, says ORD on it. That's the airport identifier. ORD does not stand for O'Hare. It stands for what it was originally, way back at the beginning of aviation, Orchard Field. And back then, it was grass field, basically, with, you know, in a rural environment. Now it's this megaplex of concrete and asphalt and airplane and jet exhaust and all that stuff. But they're still measuring the temperature there. And so wouldn't it make sense that if you are in a a high-energy environment like that with a lot of waste heat coming out of the airplane plus retained heat from the sun at night, that you're going to raise the average temperature? Well, you're yes. So this has happened all over the world. And so what we've discovered is, is that the major increase in the average temperature over the last 30 years can be attributed at least by half, half of the amount, to this encroachment of infrastructure. It's raised the nighttime temperature because of the heat retention at night, uh, because of this asphalt concrete and so forth releasing heat back into the air. Um, and that's raised the, the nighttime temperature, which therefore affects the average between the high and the low. Okay, so were you um, and the, the man you struck up a friendship with back in the 90s, were you guys sort of the first people to to sort of realize this, or were there other people that sort of had their research papers buried, as is often the case, you know, before that? They were like, uh, maybe retaining heat is a something that would influence it? Ironically, um, the National Climatic Data Center, who is responsible, for, they're in Asheville, North Carolina, they're a division of NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. They were aware of this problem back in the late 90s, and they had actually commissioned a study about it. And um, they wanted to put together something called the Climate Reference Network, and they actually started it in 2002. They wanted to get off of this old network of old stations, which were originally put in to monitor agriculture uh, forecasts and things like that. And so they made this switch, but they did it very slowly and very quietly. And then when we came on the scene in 2007, 2008, and started publicizing these really terrible weather stations, like one, a, a climate station at the University of Arizona, at the meteorology department, no less, in the middle of a parking lot, flare, smack dab right on the concrete. And the reason it's there it got moved there because the university kept building buildings all over the place due to grants and so forth, and they had nowhere else to put it, so they put it in the parking lot. We had pictures of this thing. This is a station that has a 100-year-old record with cars parked on either side of it on the concrete measuring climate there. I mean, that's how bad it had gotten. And so, so what, we started okay. talking about this, and they freaked out because they were trying to keep it quiet. So they knew. I mean, they're no dummies. They they knew that this was affecting the temperature, but what they just decided, we don't have anywhere else to put it, or we're not going to you know, add an asterisk to our data, or what? Well, they tried adjustments, but the problem is, is that these folks don't get out very much. These government types that do their studies, they sit in offices in Washington and Nashville, North Carolina, and other places, and they don't get out and look at this. So they really didn't have a complete idea of just how bad it had gotten. And when we did our study, we found uh, that about 89% 
of the stations in the United States had some form of encroachment that made them biased. And so what that meant was is that the wholesale temperature average for the United States was extremely biased and was not correct. And so they said, well, we can correct for that by doing adjustments and so forth and so on. But the bottom line is is that we shouldn't have to try to correct data or massage or adjust data. If you can't measure the data accurately, you should really be doing a different experiment. I mean, this kind of stuff, if it were in court, would get thrown out. It's, you know, forensic science would reject this kind of data. So why are we using it to change policy for the whole nation? How come nobody talks about this? Well, the power of money is ever-present. Um, President Eisenhower, when he gave his farewell speech in 1961, he talked about the uh, the worrisome uh, military-industrial complex. People remember that, and that's a buzzword. But about two paragraphs later, he talked about the the scientific uh, complex. And basically what he was saying was that um, because of World War II, because of all the money that was put into the development of the bomb, uh, the atomic bomb, and other types of scientific programs that had once been funded entirely by universities and patrons of universities on a smaller scale, had shifted to complete government funding. And so what's happened since is that we have almost all of our climate data coming straight from the government through government funding. And People that run these government programs have their own little fiefdoms, and they have to apply for you know budgets every year and so forth. And if they don't have a problem to study, if they don't have you know something to continue this ongoing thing, they don't get the budget. And so Eisenhower warned of this. He says that in science, the presence of money is gravely to be regarded, and that's what's happened to climate science. At least it has become a huge business, and when you've got that much money at stake based on, um, you know, continuing a problem, you don't really want to solve the problem. You just simply want to continue on with it. You want to continue with your budget. You want to have your job and so forth and so on. So it's a self-perpetuating problem. If it hadn't been for what you found out about the, the surface temperature stations, um, would you, do you think you would have come around to make this 180 and and sort of gotten on this transition, or were there other things that you think were bound to sort of catch your attention? Well, there's lots of other things. For example, there's claims again and again that the sea ice is going to disappear in the Arctic. Well, it's still there. Al Gore made claims back in 2008 that the summer sea ice would be gone in the Arctic by 2013, still there. Um, there were claims made you know, by other people that it was going to be gone by 2015 or 2017 or 2018, and it's still there. Yes, it's been reduced a little bit, but it's been reduced into what we would call a new equilibrium state. It's it's naturally a little bit lower right now. But back in the 70s, there was a huge amount of sea ice in the Arctic when we had a colder weather pattern for the whole globe. And a lot of this is, is done by the ocean. So the fact that, you know, climate alarmists are, are latching on to things like sea ice, um, they're talking about, you know, every drought or a thunderstorm being caused by climate change where they really don't have any basis from it, I would have come around anyway because there's so many unsupportable claims out there. And if you just simply listen to the headlines and believe them, sure, 
it sounds like we're in a dire situation. But if you dig just a little deeper to spend a little time looking into these claims now and compare them to claims that were made years ago that haven't come true, you'll realize we're just in a self-perpetuating state of constant climate alarm, and they just don't come true. They keep pushing things out 20 or 30 years, you know, and people don't have that good of a long-term memory about weather. Um, And so they think that the weather today is worse than it's ever been. But if you go back and look at the real data, look at the kinds of storms we've had, look at the kinds of droughts we've had in the United States. We had the Dust Bowl in 1933 and uh, 1934. The hottest period on record for the United States. Um, Was that caused by carbon dioxide back then? Well, no, because carbon dioxide was much, much lower. So what caused that, you know? Those are the kind of things that you, you just have to ask yourself. Just look beyond the headlines. Okay. Yeah. Speaking of headlines, when I, okay, for, I'm sure you've done this. (laughs) You probably do this all the time, but if you put like climate change into any search engine, let's say Google, and you go to, you know, the images tab, they're all hockey stick graphs, right? They're all saying, this is the warmest temperature here. This is the warmest temperature here and et cetera, et cetera. And, and these graphs are all over the place. You know, they're embedded in articles in the, the New York times and the Washington post and they're, they're everywhere. Right. And, and those sorts of, um, graphs, especially if they're officially sourced, carry a lot of authority. So are you saying that, I mean, what what else would we expect people to to really? I mean, the graph is there, right? Doesn't that make doesn't that make sense? Like, isn't that enough reason to to believe something like this? I mean, I was just reading a, like a story in, in Reuters today that said, like, absolutely, just stated it as a fact. Like, the weather patterns are worsening because of climate change. <laughs> well. Let me tell you about that. About Let's take the weather patterns are worsening because of climate change. 30 years ago, we did not have the Internet. We did not have uh, 24-hour cable television news. We didn't have the Weather Channel. We didn't have um, people carrying cell phones around with cameras everywhere in the world. Today, we do. We have all of those things. And any weather event, no matter how small, gets reported, sometimes ending up on the headlines of CNN or the New York Times or whatever. Oh, there was a tornado in Iowa. It's a little bitty thing. We wouldn't have caught it 30 years ago because there was no one there to see it. Or maybe if they did see it, they couldn't report it quickly. Now we have a tremendous ability to report events almost immediately all over the world. And so what's happened? We have a reporting bias. It seems that the weather's worse because there's more information available to be readily reported about the weather that we couldn't report before. But the fact of the matter is, is that we had tremendously powerful storms back in the earlier part of the 20th century. And people don't go back and look at the history. They just look at the present and people get the idea that storms are getting worse and then they watch the news. Well, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But the fact of the matter is when you look at the data, it's just not there. Last year, for example, we We had the lowest number of tornadoes in the United States in the 50-year history of measuring tornadoes in the United States. 2018 was an almost non-existent tornado year for the United States. Now, 
In 2019, we've got colder weather and we've got this wind shear going on between frontal systems in the Midwest, cold meeting warm, and that creates more tornadoes. Now people are saying, oh, it's climate change. It's worse than ever. Well, they completely forgot about last year when we hadn't gotten any at all. You can't just make those kind of, you know, grab onto this and say this is climate change. It's ridiculous. You have to look at the long term, and the long term says there's just not any evidence of increasingly worse weather. There's increasing evidence of more weather reporting, but not worse weather. Okay. So I think this is where a lot of people have a hard time um, because um, anthropogenic climate change, you know, like are we're making CO2 and CO2 is causing the temperatures to rise. That is like a pillar of, of scientific belief. It's like, if you deny that in, in many circles, you know, like, let's say, you know, high schoolers in, in public school right now, you would be the equivalent of a, of a flat earther because literally everybody, well, not literally because, you know, I'm talking to you right now, but, (laughs) um, Everybody is saying that this is happening. So is this something that you're virtually... Because you say look at the data, right? But in reality, people have like a lot of things going on in their lives and a lot of other things that they're concerned with. And we sort of just adopt rules of thumb, right? In terms of, you know, what people are saying. And we generally accept that, you know, what we're being told in in the news is true. Like, you know, nobody wants to be like the tinfoil hat guy. That's like, this is all nonsense. And, you know, it's all a conspiracy and, um, you know, I guess maybe you could, you could blame the military industrial complex or, or, or whoever you want, but are, is this something that you're just basically as a normal person destined to buy into unless you're a scientist or a science buff, or is this something that, you know, if you can sit down with people and explain a few things that they would come around to being like, Oh, that makes sense. Because the, the overwhelming amount of information is coming from one side, right? That's very hard to overcome. And that, that one side is funded. That one side is dependent upon money and continued money. Let me tell you three stories related to what people consider truth. First of all, back in 1988, when Dr. James Hansen testified before Congress and said we had a problem, he and his sponsor, Senator Timothy Wirth of Colorado, did something extraordinary. They picked ahead of time what they considered to be the hottest day of the year to do this testimony on in Washington. They consulted with the Weather Service and tried to figure out when it's going to be the hottest, number one. Number two, the night before, Timothy Worth, the senator, came in to the meeting room and opened up all the doors, or opened up all the windows and disabled the air conditioning system. And he admitted to this in a frontline interview. We have him on video saying this, PBS frontline. He said this. He was proud of it because he said it created bliss when people were sweating and the cameras were carrying it and so forth and so on. And so I ask you, if their science was so sure so accurate. Why do they have to use stagecraft in order to convince people it was getting hot? That's number one. Number two, you talked about the hockey stick. Well, the hockey stick has been thoroughly debunked. It's been discredited by a team of people, McIntyre and McKittrick, who did a scientific study, and they received all kinds of nastiness over this because 
and they couldn't, people couldn't imagine that scientists might make a mistake or screw up the data. Well, in this case, they did. The algorithms that were designed by this hockey stick uh, researcher by the name of Michael Mann, if you feed any data into it, it comes out with a hockey stick. He basically created a, his own confirmation bias with this. And plus that, he spliced tree ring data to the surface temperature record. That's a no-no in science. You don't mix data types and create one graph from it. So the graph itself is not accurate. And then number three, you talk about carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is making it warmer. Well, here's a little known fact. It's something science doesn't like to talk about. In the 30 years that we've been doing this, you know, global warming is a threat thing, science has not been able to nail down the exact number for climate sensitivity. Climate sensitivity is the temperature value that we would get, the increase in temperature for a doubling of CO2 in Earth's atmosphere. The ranges of estimates from computer models and other studies range from half a degree centigrade to the worst case up to eight degrees centigrade. They don't have an exact number. They act like they do, but they don't. And so the science itself isn't that certain. It's all based on modeling and opinions. So that's one of the reasons why I'm not particularly concerned. So you, you've talked about money a few different times. Do you, do you think that that's really the problem, or is it just the fact that, you know, scientists often do make mistakes and then we find out years later that you know such and such was you know so and so was was wrong about this or or wrong about that is it is it that it's too politicized or is it just that you know people sometimes make mistakes or or could it be that you're wrong well look at it this way let's say you have an organization that is being funded by the government and it's it's dedicated to studying one problem and you study the heck out of this problem. You publish all kinds of papers on it, and you say the problem's getting worse or, you know, can't be solved or whatever. And then one day somebody comes along and discovers, hey, wait a minute, maybe it's not so bad, or maybe we can solve it, or maybe we can cure this disease, or whatever it might be. And all of a sudden, the whole organization and the money associated with, you know, funding that organization, all the jobs, all the, you know, the, everything associated with that is at risk. Do you think they're going to let that go easily? Okay, so is that a problem that can be solved? I mean, how do you take how do you take the money out of science? Is that even possible? At this point, I'm not sure you can because the government has so many funded science programs through the National Science Foundation and other organizations. I mean, science is awash with government money, and the goal is is to get the next grant. That's how you keep your science going. And, and you, you know, you can go to disease, for example. It, in some drug companies, and these are, of course, outside of government, the independent the private drug companies, a lot of them really, uh, it's not in their best interest to come up with a cure. It's in their best interest to come up with a treatment. Because if you can treat the symptoms and make life livable, you can keep selling that drug again and again and again. But a cure, well, you can sell that once. Hmm. Okay. Well, could, couldn't you uh, see maybe somebody like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez turning that on its head and saying, well, if everybody owned everything, you know, if everything was public, then they'd be forced to work on cures. What do you say to that? There was an episode in 2009 called Climategate. 
ClimateGate exposed the climate scientists because the emails that they had been talking with themselves back and forth came out and became public. And what was discovered in ClimateGate is that these guys didn't believe their own predictions in some cases. They were poo-pooing each other, saying, you know, well, you know, this isn't exactly right, but, you know, we've got to do this. Uh, they, they also said things like, um, they talked about the hockey stick. Uh, the climate tr data from the tree rings actually went into uh, decline. They went lower from 1960 to 2000, and that didn't fit the narrative, so they chopped it off. They got rid of the data. And the theme from that email, where they were talking about doing that was to hide the decline using Mike's nature trick, referring to a, a paper he'd done in the journal Nature. And so here we had an example of scientists that were doing things to make a certain outcome, to make it look like it's worse than, you know, we thought, uh, making that big hockey stick, when in fact the data was saying something else. We see this kind of data manipulation and outright fraud sometimes in drug company trials and so forth because there's so much money behind getting the success of that drug out there that data gets faked. And so we got the same problem in climate science. State is adjusted, massaged to make an outcome, and it goes on every day. And sure, people can look at me and talk about it and say, well, you know, I'm just a conspiracy theorist, but the fact of the matter is I'm not. I used to be completely on the other side of this, believing it. But it's only because I looked carefully behind the scenes, I pulled back the curtain and looked at this stuff, that I realized that we don't have this big climate crisis after all. Yes, it's gotten warmer, but... How much of that is due to natural changes in the earth? How much of it is due to carbon dioxide? There's some effect. How much of it is due to bad weather station siding? Science hasn't even be able, been able to sort that out yet. So, you know, climate crisis, no. Climate change, a little bit. But I don't think we're going to have a problem. In fact, if you go back through history and look at human successes back through, you know, the ages, humans do better in a warmer environment. The dark ages um, were during a period of cold and wet situations in Europe. Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein when it was cold and wet in Europe. And, you know, it was basically uh, periods of famine and disease and so forth. So humanity thrives in warmth, but does not do so well in cold. So why are we afraid of it? Because so many people live on the water in very expensive mansions. <laughs> Well, Al Gore owns an expensive mansion on the waterfront. He hasn't abandoned it yet because he's afraid of uh, the sea level rise. What's up with that? What's up with that? Yes. Pun intended. Okay. One more question for you. Um, if you just had somebody who is, hmm, let's say, high school educated and they've got other things going on in their life and they're not necessarily science buffs, but they're like, yeah, I I really think that this global warming thing is something we should be concerned about, and maybe they're factoring this into the people that they're voting for. You know, if that person was sitting across from you right now um, who thinks that global warming is an emergency and you had a few minutes to talk with them, what would be the most persuasive argument you would offer? Well, the most persuasive argument I would offer is I would put the data in front of that person, both um, hard data like temperature as well as anecdotal things like uh, reports through history of storms and so forth. And I would say, look at the past. 
Look at what happened in the past with temperature, like in 1934 or in 1933 in the United States. Look at how hot it was, never as hot since. Look at uh, the intensity of storms that were measured back then. Um, look at um, these things. Look at the past. People forget history. They don't pay attention to it sometimes. And they only look at the present. And, and if you don't look at the past and compare it to the present, you don't really have a reference frame by which to judge what's going to happen or whether what is happening now is really worse or not. And so I would just simply say, look at the history. Look at the history of planet Earth. Look at the turmoil it's been through, the temperature it's been through. Look at periods in the past when CO2 was higher. The Earth didn't roast, didn't burn up. Look at the past when we had higher sea levels. Look at the past when we had lower sea levels. The planet naturally changes. And I would point these things out to them to try to help them understand that it's natural to have change on our planet. It's not a static entity and never will be. And so the path forward is adaptation. And we, as humans, have successfully adapted uh, to change of temperature, change of sea level. Uh, if you go back and look at New York City in 1650 and the, the sea level then, it's changed. It's gotten higher, but New York City hasn't drowned. Uh, places like Miami are actually shrinking or, sub, or they're subsiding. The earth is, is dropping because they pulled too much groundwater out. And so, you know, it's getting a little lower and the sea is starting to come in some places. That's not climate change change. That's just bad water management. These are the kinds of things that people just really don't look at because a lot of our society is based on short attention span theater. We look at the headlines, but we don't look beyond the headlines to see what's really going on. What would you say to the journalists who are furthering the narrative of anthropogenic climate change? What, what would you say to them in terms of um, how they should be doing their, their research and putting their pieces together when they're talking about, for instance, weather events. Because um, are the people, are, for instance, the PhDs who are talking to us on the news or who are giving interviews to these journalists, are they intimately familiar with the raw data um, and how it's produced, or they're just going off bottom lines? I spent 30 years on, in radio and television, and I can tell you that in t most television newsrooms, the most knowledgeable person is the meteorologist, the guy who gives the daily forecast. The majority of television meteorologists are not all that concerned about climate change. Yes, some are, but the majority of them are not. We know this by studies and queries and polls and so forth. And they know this because um, they look at the science deeper than the reporter does. The reporter typically has a few hours to do a story and they are they're on a deadline so they can't dig deeply into anything and all they get to do basically in a lot of the cases is take a press release from the government or the researcher call them ask them some questions and then write it up there's not a whole lot of deep research that goes into this stuff and so that's why we end up with a bias in the way of re the, the science the climate science is reported because the reporter just does not have the training or the resources to dig into this deeply my advice would be dig deeper Take a few days or a couple of weeks to do a story. Do it on the side. Look deeper, and then you might find that it doesn't match what you're being told in the press release. Anthony, thank you so much for joining me today and talking with me about this. It has been extremely informative. I am very impressed at how much information you can pack into a small amount of time. 
<laughs> it's very impressive. Um, uh, please, uh, if you would, uh, I would like to invite our listeners to visit my website at mm-hmm. What's Up With That, W-A-T-T-S, What's Up With That dot com. We have stories going every day, and we have over 20,000 stories in our archive that you can look for and find out the real truth behind climate. You can follow the podcast on social media at 180cast. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and give it a review if you like it. It really does help put this podcast in front of more ears. Uh, If you have a 180 story to share or you know somebody who does, please DM me on Twitter at 180cast or just come hang out. You can also follow me on Twitter at Georgie underscore Borman. Um, Yeah. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.